into uh, this morning's sermon, uh, I do want to point out something in the, inside the bulletin. You've probably seen this the last few weeks. Uh, we had, I think it must have been before uh, pandemic, we had art on the front of the bulletin that we used in worship uh, and possibly at times maybe had an insert. We now are using an insert, and so you'll see this insert that is inside. If you grab the blue one, I know it's uh, just tucked inside there, uh, and on the back there's a, a poem, and there's an a, a image on the, on the front there. Uh, this is a great piece to take with you from worship, use it within worship, but also take with you, take it home, and spend some time during the week using it as a, as a place of reflection. I know a, a lot of thought and intention goes in that, and it's a great resource for us as a community as we ponder God's Word and what God is saying to us, both through uh, God's Word uh, written, but also through the reflections of those artists uh, in our world who help us to see in some different ways. So over the last couple of weeks, I've become more appreciative of my eyesight, uh, probably because it's failing. Um, I'm going to be wearing my glasses more. I've got a, an appointment scheduled. Um, I've shared this with a few folks already, but I was diagnosed a couple weeks ago with diabetes. And so my, uh, um, my eyesight is very much part of that. And, and so I've become uh, far more appreciative. You'll actually be seeing less of your pastor in the coming weeks and months if everything goes according to plan because I've been losing weight like it's going out of business. So <laughs> there'll be less of me going around. Um, and it's all part of the process of, of, of trying to get a handle on, on my health uh, with that. But because of my eyesight failing, I, I have gained a, a far greater appreciation uh, for that gift that God gives us with our eyes. And it's a new experience for me, uh, having been someone who hasn't worn glasses, really other than readers in the last few years. Um, it's a new experience for me to see things that I once uh, took for granted as being blurry and, and out of focus. Um, it, quite a surprise when you wake up and, you, and that, that's your experience for the first time as an adult. Um, if you haven't had that experience, you have all the more reason to be appreciative for your eyesight. I imagine the Philippian audience here, as we look at our text this morning, finds themselves with a bit of blurry vision themselves. That their, their eyes and what they could see was blurred. It wasn't as clear as it, as it could have been. And this isn't the kind of blurry vision that spectacles and lasers can fix. It's not that type of uh, blurry vision, but rather the kind that we all possess to one degree or another. It's the blurry vision that doesn't allow us to see all the facets of a situation. The one where we realize that our vision is tunneled to some degree, uh, that we can't see around every corner, and so inaccurate assessments and wrong conclusions can quickly follow uh, what we think we see. But how can we blame them? How could we blame this Philippian church for anything other than blurry vision, especially when we read in verse 12, Paul writing, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, and what has happened to him? Well, verse 13 tells us that Paul's in prison. We also find out that Paul's not facing any kind of minor slap on the wrist. This is something that could have a pretty major consequences for him, we see that in verses 20 through 23 where the apostle here is pondering life and death itself. He's pondering these things because there's the very real possibility that the outcome would be his execution. And so he is facing something of the most significant and serious type of things in life. And as we might imagine, this takes a great personal toll on an individual. It's not by accident that someone who is on death row in their, their final hours are granted a visit from clergy, because what they're facing, as you think about the human experience, is of the deepest and, again, most significant kind of emotional experience and toll that one can experience. 
We know that Paul felt this way about his situation. Even though he doesn't tell us in this text directly, he does tell us in chapter 2. He peels the layer back just a little bit in chapter 2, verse 27, when he uses the word sorrow. He talks about sorrow upon sorrow to talk about this, this experience. But we can also turn outside of Philippians and hear about his experience as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we find this description from Paul himself who writes, We do not want you to be ignorant of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. And then in the very next verse, after these two verses, he writes, So deadly a peril is how he talks about that. From the vantage point of the man on the street, if you're just observing all these things where Paul is at this point, you would think that this apostle had been sidelined, that he was out of business, that the project of proclaiming Jesus as Lord in the face of an empire that hails Caesar as Lord, that seems to have come to an end, that they locked him up, they chained him up, He's been secured as a prisoner, but also silenced as an apostle. Anybody with eyes could see that. But that's not how Paul sees it. That's not the way he sees it. And he invites his first century readers, and he invites each one of us this morning to see it differently as well, to see it the way that he sees it. And when we do, when we put on Pauline eyes, put on those Paul eyes, a far different picture emerges. Before we get to that picture, there is a witness that can creep in here in our lives, and it shows up in all kinds of different places, and I call it the witness of fear. The witness of fear. Fear and suspicion, you know this. That's a tandem that brings ruin to just about every community and relationship that it lives within. And when I say just about, I mean every relationship. It destroys communities it destroys congregations, it destroys lives. How many human ventures that we know and enterprises have been undercut by this pair, by fear and by suspicion? How many relationships have crumbled, dissolved, and were jettisoned because of these? And on this Philippian front, what has happened to Paul, this, this imprisonment, this chaining him up, could very well give rise to such a witness, this witness of fear. A jailed apostle might mean that the gospel has been silenced and the mission efforts have been thwarted. It could also mean, in the void, less well-meaning, and folks that are the type that probably require a reprimand, might step into that void and proclaim a message for their own aims. It might also mean the indignity of incarceration. And we know that in our own day and age, that we oftentimes will put some sort of spot or mark on those who've been incarcerated for no other reason than the fact they've been incarcerated. Might also mean that the message here lacks substance, that Paul's message has no relevancy, that it's just a hollow facade. Our writer's not unaware of this. Paul's not unaware of this kind of thinking. And so he looks uh, in our reading to clear things up. And he introduces this by using what scholars have identified as a conventional form. So that very beginning of verse 12 is a very conventional form for a letter of that day. But scholars will say this, he uses it in an unconventional way. Where he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, 
he then doesn't tell them what he wants them to know, or at least what we suspect he would say. A reader in Paul's day, or even in our own, would expect that Paul would give us a detailed recounting of his experience. Tell me about the abuses. Tell me where you stand in your legal case. Tell me what your situation is. We're looking forward to hearing all these things played out for us. Just give us bullet point after bullet point. Let us know where you stand in the process. But not here. That's not what Paul does. Paul shifts to what he understands to be the most important part of his present predicament. He says the very most important thing for him is not his own particular situation. No, the most important thing for Paul is the advance of the gospel. That he wants that to be at the forefront, front and center. And because of this, commentators like G. Walter Hansen will observe, Paul's most urgent concern is to demonstrate that his imprisonment actually served to advance the gospel. That it's actually playing a role in that. You've got to have a different set of eyes to see that. When you're chained up, when you're locked up, when you're suffering the way Paul's suffering, to see this as having any progress or advance of the gospel, that takes a unique kind of eyes and vision. And that's what Paul wants his readers to have. This imprisonment of verse 13 translates the word for chains or bonds. We have it as imprisonment, but it's this idea of ropes or chains or bonds, anything that would secure someone. So yes... It's about Paul's predicament here. He is writing about this. But the, the apostle then holds those chains up in a way for his readers to see them, to look at them, and to look through them. Not at them and stare, but rather to look through them to see something else. And there's a bit of a wordplay that's going on here. Paul's playing a little kind of word uh, trick here for us. I think it would really hook his audience, particularly his Greek audience, as they hear these, this play of words they're probably all expecting a very particular Greek word in verse 12 for a hindrance, which is proskope. Uh, they're expecting to hear that word, right? You change somebody up, they're going to be hindered, right? Proskope. I'm going to hinder you. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> you're chained. Except for if you're my dog. When I was growing up, I had a dog that we chained in the backyard. He ran to the end of the chain, turned around, and the collar slipped right off, and he ran off. All those hours of work of putting that chain in that thing in, and they're gone in two minutes. But not in this case. The, the Roman Empire was much better at putting chains than we were. But hindrance, proscope, that's the word you'd expect to hear. But instead what we have is procope, a similar sounding word, but it means something completely different. It's the word for progress. That the chains themselves weren't a hindrance, but they actually, and Paul changes it here for his hearers to hear this, it actually advances the gospel, doesn't hinder it. Of course, it is one thing to say that, it's one thing to write that down, but it's quite a different thing, quite a different reality for it to actually be happening. So how is the gospel advancing? How is it progressing? If the apostle's locked up and the key's been thrown away, how is the gospel advancing here? Well, according to our text, one of the ways is that it's become known throughout the entire imperial guard. That's what thir verse 13 tells us. And if you follow the footnote to the bottom of the page, we'll see that imperial guard there is a reference to what is called the whole praetorium, this idea of a praetorian guard. Now, this, this role, these imperial guards, this was a sought-after role. Like, this is an elite kind of role that you would get. Veterans would be assigned uh, these roles, and very particular folks. And people wanted this job. You got paid more. You actually had some pretty sizable bonuses when the Caesar changed. And sometimes this guard were the ones who changed the Caesar. But there was some money to be made and to be had in this particular role. 
had much shorter service time. When you look at the serving in the legions, you didn't have to serve as long when you served inside these ranks. And so you had less time of service. So you get to retirement a lot sooner. And their role put them in close proximity with the elite, the powerful, Rome's most powerful figures. That's the circles that these folks would have been working in and operating around, including the emperor himself. And for the whole praetorium to know that Paul's imprisonment is for Christ meant that far from his imprisonment sidelining him, far from those chains hindering him, and far from being in isolation, that this all provided an opportunity for Paul for invocation, where he could actually uh, preach and proclaim the gospel, to make it known amongst the powerful, to make it known within the core of Rome itself, that this word could go amongst those folks running in those circles, and that this was a goal for Paul. This was part of his ministry and, and mission, was to get it to Rome, because as they say, all roads lead to Rome, and all roads lead away from Rome as well. Would send the gospel out amongst the entire empire and to, throughout the entire world. That's what Paul was hoping for, was that the gospel would be heard, that King Jesus would be the message that would be proclaimed uh, throughout the entire world. It sounds a bit like the Great Commission, doesn't it? That's what Paul's hope was. That's what was hope. A second way it was progressing is clear in verse 14, where we learn of what effect Paul's imprisonment was having on early Christian communities. So you think about this opportunity of invocation. At this point, we have the opportunity for inspiration. Far from being silenced, many of these early Jesus followers uh, saw Paul's imprisonment and they stepped up. They stepped into those roles of being witnesses themselves, that they felt a responsibility, but more than a responsibility, that there was a sense that what was going on in the world was real, that the faith that they have come to know, come to know is a real faith that the conflict that exists between the world and Christ's kingdom is a real conflict. And if Paul was to be arrested by the empire of his day because of the kingdom of God, there must be some kind of reality to that, and that it was time for them to step in and, and fill out those ranks. What an incredible, paradoxical type of thing to happen, right? You would expect, and this is what power oftentimes expects to do, is that if they can silence an individual, it will silence the movement. But we see in our own day and age that folks rise up, they step up, that change agents aren't stopped so easily, but rather they step forward even as folks are arrested and imprisoned. Think about this moment in our own world where we think about people in Russia right now uh, who are rising up, who are stepping up and protesting at great risk to themselves. And that's the kind of feel that this must have had in that earliest Christian community of the risks that would be involved and what could be taken, but it didn't silence them. They stepped up, and here we are today because of their faithfulness. You know, I read the, these two parts where the gospel is advancing, and if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you'll know that this, these two ideas here are, are ones that show up at the very end, in the very last verse of that book. There Paul's arrived in Rome, uh, which was both a missional and a literary objective of the book. If you read through Acts, that's kind of the goal, was to go to the ends of the earth. And he's awaiting trial, and if you remember that last verse of Acts, it says, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. And then here's verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. 
What an example that he must have been as well. Not just being in chain, but actually the way that he was living his life as one who preached boldly and who also was able to do so without hindrance, regardless of whatever chains were on him to muzzle him. So the gospel is advancing. It's progressing while Paul's in chains, and others are inspired to bear witness. The others, though, include a range of participants, right? There's not just one kind of person that's proclaiming here. Paul identifies the range in verses 15 through 18. He says, some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill, right? So there's two completely different motivations there. The latter do so out of love, and that group knows Paul's in prison for the defense of the gospel in verse 16. So the apostle's still in the game. Apostle's still in the game. He's not sidelined. But then there's this, the others do so out of selfish ambition. There's some sort of selfish intent here, a motive that's uh, self-gaining. Uh, There's some sort of profit they're going to get out of this. And Paul's suffering while he wears the chains. Their motive, of course, is, is false in verse 18. And, of course, there's a lot of speculation about who these folks are. I read a number of commentaries and articles this last week about this, and I probably had as many different descriptions of who these folks were from each one of those. Each person had a different kind of picture of who that was. And that ranged from all the way from folks that are kind of out there doing this kind of mission-type work that um, would be counter the Christian faith as their own kind of gain. They kind of picked up the message and went running with it with their own kind of spin on things. Uh, all the way to, it could have been the guards themselves mocking Paul with the words of the gospel uh, in that. So there's all kinds of takes on that. But whoever these are, we get a picture here of Paul's gospel and mission focus. He rejoices that Christ is proclaimed. Because again, for Paul, the emphasis here was the advancement of the gospel, that the gospel progresses. And if dudes are going to just be saying whatever, as long as that's being gospel's being preached, Paul was like, so be it. The message is out there. It's being heard. That's being gospel-focused. And we shouldn't be surprised after all, because he goes on to say that for me, living is Christ, and dying is gain. This is a person who has been transformed by Jesus Christ. And not only has been transformed, is a citizen of the kingdom and realizes and recognizes what an awesome responsibility that is and what a gift it is. And so here's this person who's been so changed that they would write these kind of words while they are in chains because of the gospel. Now, if I were just to stop there, we might say that Paul here is offering kind of the, what we'd say this is the pom-pom sermon, right? Go, fight, win, right? He's cheering us on. It's a rah-rah kind of thing. If we pause there with just the text, if that's where things ended and wrapped up, we'd say, well, that sounds encouraging. But for a 21st century Jesus follower. What do I do with that? Especially if you live in the Western world. I'm not in chains. No one's locking me up. I, sure, I could, I could give witness to the gospel in my workplace and to friends and wherever, and they might write me up. <laughs> they might tell me to stop. They may not invite me to beer afterwards. But that's far from being imprisoned in a Roman prison and waiting to see if I'm going to be executed. That's a far cry from that. My family may not want to talk to me for a while. I may not get invited to Thanksgiving. 
But again, I'm not facing execution. I'm not facing what Paul faces. Well, there's another note here in this text that I think we need to pay close attention to. And there's a pastoral note here from Paul. And that pastoral note uh, looks out at us just beyond our text. It's a few verses beyond that. We see that note. He writes in verse 30, he says, You are having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul's intent here, again, is not to say I'm super Christian, and so here you go, here's super Christian. But rather his intent is to offer care to a community that was also suffering, a community that was also struggling. He's not saying I'm one and the only one. He's saying I'm one amongst many. And let me encourage you as well in your same journey because together, we're in this together. But together, we're facing the same hardships that Jesus Christ faced. In fact, Paul's own predicament, he's quite mindful of where he's at. There's actually a, a, what's called uh, here in the text, there's a, there's a portion here uh, in Philippians 1.19 that's a reference to the Greek Old Testament, a verse out of there. It's a reference to the book of Job that shows up when he talks about his deliverance. So Paul's mindset at this point is the one who is the person who is suffering and how that person is to be vindicated and how they exist in God's presence. But here's the thing for us today. We started out with my bad vision, right? I think our eyesight has been all affected. We've all been affected at some level. We all require readers at this point. Even if you don't think you need readers, the pandemic has ruined our eyesight in many ways. It's changed us. It changed us. If you remember back to uh, 9-11 and how that changed the way that we, we fly, right? You can remember a time, I don't, many here in this room would remember a time where maybe you're sitting in the plane waiting to take off and it's just moments before it's going to taxi and someone comes running and jumping in the door and they let them in. Or your family or friends are standing at the gate wishing you, waving goodbye to you out the window as you board the plane and how that all changed overnight. When big events like that, consequential events happen, they change us. And in some cases, we see the changes. We know them. We say, oh, yeah, that, that, that changed us. And that's, that's far different than it was the day before. The pandemic's not like that. In some ways, we do see big changes. But in other ways, there's more subtle ones that sneak up on us. We take on habits and addictions. We embrace lifestyles and ways of doing business. Even the way that we enter into relationships or maintain our relationships are affected by the pandemic. And I wonder here, as we move into a world that is, is, has many more treatments for what we've faced and experienced, and that it's not necessarily a death sentence to have COVID at this point. I wonder if we, at some point in this text, need to have a mindset change as well. That this is inviting you and me to adopt a healthier way of living as kingdom people. That's inviting us to a place that what it means to be a true Jesus follower might help us to engage a dangerous world that we live in, in a world that's always been dangerous. And so as we look at this, I turned uh, to a blog this last week uh, from a person who describes himself in this way. Award-winning children's book author, speaker, dyslexia advocate, and radio show host. That's their own description of themselves. That's a long description. <laughs> Don Wynn. And he recounted in a recent blog the effect of a middle-aged friend who recently got their first dog. 
Just imagine you're middle aged and you get your first dog. I'm a dog owner. I've been a dog owner. I think my whole life my family's had dogs. I love them. Maybe you're a cat person. You love your cat. Maybe you're a python person. You love your python. Who knows? But he talks about the numerous text messages and pictures that have been traded with his friend who, loved, who got this first dog. And Don describes experiences this way. He says, it's very enjoyable and has brought many a smile to my face. At the same time, this experience is moving him to see the world differently. His friend's first dog is having him see the world differently. How is it, how is it doing that for Don? Well, he says, one thing my friend said really struck a chord with me. He said, the dog looks at everything, and the dog has to stop and smell everything. It's as if everything in the neighborhood is new and exciting. He's making me slow down and really notice my surroundings. Don goes on to reflect. It got me thinking about how often I look but don't really see or experience the things around me. How often do I slow down and look at creatures and plants and nature around me? Notice their texture and color, their size and shape. I don't think that's what the dog is doing, but we'll just go with them here. Not often enough. No, instead, I trudge from one end of the house to another, focused on some task. At other times, okay, most of the time, I'm dithering over my own inner narrative. So he's changed. His perspective has changed. Don will conclude with this. He says, life isn't perfect, but when I really pay attention to what surrounds me, it is very, very good. Friends, life isn't perfect. We know that. Life is troubling. It's dangerous. It leaves us with maybe even more tears than it does laughter. At points it takes us to dark places, but there's also places of great joy and delight. We move about on a large roller coaster. And I wonder, like, here, not the dog that forms inspiration for us, but the Apostle Paul in Philippians, to say if we were given new eyes ourselves, to see the world differently, to see where Christ is on the move, where the Spirit is at work in our community and our congregation, where God is at work amongst this congregation, each one of us, as God is speaking in us and through us and to us in the lives of our neighbors, in our community. Perhaps we too might come to recognize that yes, life isn't perfect. It might find you at a time in chains. But when we really pay attention to what surrounds us and we do so with the eyes of the Apostle Paul, but even more, with the eyes of Jesus Christ, the Christ vision, we come to see that God has very, very good things in store for us and for all of humanity. May it be so in our generation. May we have those eyes. Amen. Let's pray.